Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Persia, Episode 8, Fill in the Titles. I want to open with a description of an event, one of the most significant in the ancient world. Imagine this. There's excitement in the capital city. Crowds are lining the streets, cheering. The status quo has been overturned, and it is a time of great uncertainty. A man enters the city. The crowds get even more excited. 
They hail him as King of Kings, Bringer of Peace, Chosen One of their God, and hundreds of Jews call him Messiah. Palm branches are laying on the ground before him as he processes through the city streets, and for centuries to come, this day would be remembered as the dawn of a new age. So no, I didn't skip five and a half centuries of narrative, but both I and the followers of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century AD were fully aware of how that description matches the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem at the start of Passover, one week before his crucifixion, an event which was commemorated by Christians around the world this past weekend on Palm Sunday, and will be marked by Orthodox churches next weekend. This is being released in the week of April 15th, 2019, for those that find this episode later. No, the event I described was actually the entry of Cyrus the Great into Babylon, three weeks after a Persian army, led by Ugbaru the Gutian, captured the city. Cyrus had probably negotiated the terms of Babylon's annexation into his kingdom with the pro-Persian elements of the Babylonian nobility and priests. The exact nature of that settlement is unknown to us. It is likely that it included rewards for those that aided the Persians, and punishments for those who supported the defeated king Nabonidus. Possibly some other details were included, like ending the exile of populations including the Jews who had been subjugated by the Babylonians, or the new administrative boundaries of Babylonia as a satrapy within the Persian Empire. What it almost certainly included was the plan for Cyrus's grand entrance into Babylon itself, and the official royal propaganda that would precede him. Like I discussed last time, the official royal account of how Babylon was conquered by the Persians was recorded on a variety of inscriptions around southern Mesopotamia. But the most famous example has to be the Cyrus Cylinder, that little inscribed clay barrel found in the ruins of Babylon in 1879. And the content of that cylinder will be the focus of today's episode. I also want to give a plug for the book that provided a lot of the information for this episode, and many of the episodes that will follow. Cyrus the Great, Life and Lore, edited by Rahim Shayegan. It's a new edited volume that is a book with essays by multiple people in it, just published last year. I admit it's pretty academic, but if you are able to get over that, it's a great survey of some of the most up-to-date scholarship on Cyrus, his cylinder, and his legacy. I'll post a link to it on the website. It's also my source for any quotes from the Cyrus Cylinder in this episode, because Chapter 1 is a recent transliteration and translation of the Cylinder by Hans-Petter Schaudig. Back to the document itself, though. As I described last time, this is a clay barrel, about 10 inches long and 4 inches thick, with Akkadian cuneiform writing running lengthwise. It's the picture posted with this episode on the website. It was found in 1879 by archaeologists excavating the great temple of Marduk at Babylon, called the Esagil. Cylinders like this have a long history in Mesopotamia. They were made of fired clay to ensure their durability, and were usually placed in the foundations of buildings as they were built or restored. The cylinders themselves were not really meant to be used as normal records to be pulled out and looked up. For that, the same inscription could be copied onto a clay tablet. Two such tablets have been identified containing parts of the Cyrus Cylinder inscription. 
the record on the cylinder was mostly meant for the gods, but also for any future kings who might restore the same structure. It is probable that other buildings restored by Cyrus had their own cylinder inscriptions, but we have never uncovered any of those. Also notice that this was written in Akkadian, the primary literary language of Babylon, which it had been for thousands of years at this point. I discussed in episode 3 how the Median Empire, and by extension the Persians with it, didn't really have their own literary tradition. Until very recently, the Persians had been one Iranian tribe amongst many, and there was no prestige associated with their language. And on top of that, there wasn't really any historic writing style associated with them either. Instead, the style of the Cyrus Cylinder is more in line with Babylonian traditions and might reflect the strength of the relationship between the Persian conquerors and the priests of Marduk who cooperated with them. As it happens, an equivalent to Mesopotamian declarations of royal construction doesn't even appear in later Old Persian literature. It was something that Cyrus specifically co-opted from existing Mesopotamian traditions. Everything in it is too. And yet... It is also different from its predecessors. The Cyrus Cylinder isn't just a record of how great this king is and how he built all of these things. It is also a declaration of his reforms, a condemnation of a defeated predecessor, a celebration of the new monarch, a prayer to Marduk, and an attempt to legitimize the new dynasty. All of these things appear in previous Mesopotamian records, but not usually in building inscriptions. Where they do appear, however, is in the inscriptions of conquerors and usurpers over generations of rulers, both native and foreign. But there are particular similarities to inscriptions from the Neo-Assyrian kings Sargon II and Ashurbanipal, both of whom appeared in episode 1 of this show. Specifically, Babylonian influence is evident in the writing style, which is unsurprising as the priests of Marduk are generally understood to have composed the text, and of course there is the context of the document being written for the Babylonians. The more direct similarities with the Assyrian predecessors are still Assyrian inscriptions about the city and the territory of Babylon, though. A lot of the similarities with other Babylonian and Assyrian inscriptions come from writing style, and other content that's kind of hard for me to demonstrate without actually giving you text side by side, or reading a lot of it out loud. Even then, it's not the best way to present it, because the text was, of course, all in Akkadian, which is definitely not something I'm equipped to analyze on this show. It's not really something that makes for great podcasting anyway, and when it's particularly important, I'll do my best to summarize. If this kind of literary comparison is something that interests you, check out the book I mentioned earlier, which goes into full detail and comparisons with excerpts from many different texts. With that in mind, let's really break down the context of the Cyrus Cylinder itself. The opening lines are, unfortunately, some of the more damaged sections of the whole document, but the overall meaning can still be worked out. The first twelve lines deal with the god Marduk's power and his fury over Nabonidus's failures as king. The defeated king is called a low and unworthy man, installed as lord of Marduk's country without his consent. It goes on to describe how Nabonidus halted the worship of Marduk in Babylon, lavished praise rightfully belonging to Marduk on the temple of Shin at Ur, and tormented the people of Babylonia. This is all stuff we talked about last week, 
Nabonidus's religious reforms, including changes to taxation, were deeply unpopular with the priests of Marduk who were losing privileges and prestige on account of Nabonidus's devotion to Shin. In all likelihood, he wasn't actually doing much to torture the population beyond not providing proper patronage to the other deities, but in a culture where those deities protect you from famine, plague, and other natural disasters as well as the seething hordes of outside invaders, the king's favoritism probably wasn't scoring too many points either. Marduk isn't the only god that Nabonidus offends, according to the Cylinder. It describes Nabonidus rounding up the southern Mesopotamian cult statues as violating the gods' sacred places, causing the gods to leave their statues and abandon their people. This is accompanied by accusations that the king neglected those shrines as well, and they are described as in ruins, though we should probably understand that as just neglected or empty as we don't actually have any information that suggests Nabonidus destroying cult sanctuaries. It is only then that Marduk acts. So, naturally, let's enter some outside invaders. And I want to read this passage in full. It does a better job of illustrating exactly how Cyrus was portraying himself than I ever could. Quote, But Marduk, the lofty Enlil of the gods, relented, and felt pity for the cities whose dwelling places were lying in ruins. He made up his mind, and had mercy on the people of Babylon, who had become like the living dead. Marduk scanned and checked all the countries, looking for a righteous king, dear to his heart, and finally took with his very hand Cyrus, king of the city of Anshan, and calling his name, he appointed him to be king of the entire world. End quote. We're only halfway through the section that I want to read here, and you've already got a very vivid picture. The great and merciful king of the gods found a righteous champion in the form of Cyrus to liberate the poor shuffling masses of Babylon from Nabonidus' despotism. The living dead, king of the world, those are powerful images no matter when you're writing. Picking up where I left off, Marduk made bow down at Cyrus's feet the land of the Gutians, and all of the Uminmanda, and all the people that had been given into his hands, Cyrus tended most carefully, like a shepherd in truth and righteousness. Marduk, the great lord, who takes care of his people, saw with pleasure his good deeds and his righteous heart. He commanded Cyrus to set out for Babylon. He made him take the way to Babylon, and like a friend and companion, he walked at Cyrus's side. End quote. And just like that, in less than four lines of cuneiform text, Marduk goes from apocalyptic imagery to triumphant, yet merciful and kindly. Marduk is a powerful and raging god, but for his chosen liberator, he bestows power over many nations and is a friend and a guide on the righteous path to Babylon. Hopefully, if my deliberately vague opening story sounded familiar to you, this imagery does too. And I promise there is a reason, but we're not quite to that part of the cylinder yet. Just within the section I quoted, you also have Cyrus being given a divine mandate over his whole empire. He is given dominion not over his native Anshan in Babylonia, but also the Umanmanda, the regular Babylonian phrase for talking about the Medes, and the Gudians, who made up the bulk of the Persian army led by Ugbaru that actually took control of Babylon and captured Nabonidus. 
The only parts of Cyrus's empire not addressed directly here are Lydia and the other Anatolian territories. They didn't have as much cultural presence in Babylon, where this propaganda was being disseminated, and they still get wrapped up in the declaration that Cyrus is now king of the whole world. That phrase, as well as the imagery of Marduk taking the king by his hand and guiding him like a friend or companion, and the king being a shepherd to his subjects, are not unique to Cyrus's cylinder. Similar lines, even word for word the same phrases, appear in the inscriptions of both Babylonian and Assyrian kings going back centuries before 539. The point of being befriended and chosen by the king of the gods is clear enough. The gods chose Cyrus to be king. How can any good and gods-fearing mortal dispute his rule if that's true? The shepherd imagery is also pretty clear. Cyrus will protect his people and steer them in the right direction. But king of the world has an important political implication even if it only mattered in theory. Cyrus has been made king of the whole world by the will of the greatest god. Any further conquests are thus only carrying out that divine mandate. Would the Egyptians or steppe nomads who don't worship Marduk care? Not really, but it sure does play well with the crowds back in Babylon, which was suddenly at the center of the Persian Empire. The next brief section is part of the Cyrus Cylinder that I addressed last time. Cyrus's victory is described. He entered Babylon peacefully, and was received by the adoring cheers of his new subjects. Of course, this version skips the part where Ugbaru forcibly occupied the city for three weeks, but this is all about how awesome and important Cyrus is. Giving praise to anyone else, especially someone who probably had to force submission from at least some of the Babylonians violently, wasn't going to fly. No, this document explains to the Babylonians that Cyrus and Marduk alone were responsible for peaceably replacing Nabonidus, no matter what the dirtier details of reality might have been. Following Cyrus's grand entrance into the city, the cylinder includes Cyrus's self-introduction to the Babylonians. Here's the quote. I am Cyrus, king of the world, the great king, the mighty king, the king of Babylon, king of the land of Sumer and Akkad, the king of the four quarters of the world, son of Cambyses, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, descendant of Taspes, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, eternal scion of kingship, whose rule Bel and Nabu dearly love, whose kingship they desired for their own delight. That's a mouthful. I won't even admit how many takes it took for me to get all of that out correctly. So that's the inspiration for fill in the titles. This section of text always makes me think of a scene from Game of Thrones all the way back in season one. For those of you that don't watch the show, or don't remember every scene for seven seasons of TV, there is a scene in episode seven of the first season where the king, Robert Baratheon, is lying on his deathbed and starts dictating his last will and testament. And before he even gets through the first one, he says, Oh, you know how it goes. Fill in the damn titles. In the context of the show, that line just gets funnier with each passing season, as a whole host of characters keep adding names and descriptors to their official royal names. Which is really just absurd, because the basic royal titles in Westeros already have five or six items. 
Cyrus does his very best to give these fictional kings and queens a run for their money, though, rattling off a full ten titles or descriptions. That's without counting the two titles ascribed to each of his three most recent ancestors, or King of Anshan, which was used to describe Cyrus earlier on the cylinder. Let's pick through them in order of appearance, actually starting with King of Anshan. Back in episode 5, Cyrus, King of Persia, I had a lengthy breakdown of the use of the King of Persia title, in which I made the assumption that King of Anshan was Cyrus's default title. However, that was before I got my Life and Lore book, which has another hypothesis. It doesn't touch on King of Persia, but it suggests that Cyrus's use of King of Anshan, especially in the Cyrus Cylinder, which was written after he had a pretty impressive empire, was actually a way of gaining prestige in Babylon. Anshan would have been at least vaguely familiar to a Mesopotamian audience from its use in the title of Elamite kings who used to call themselves the kings of Susa and Anshan. By using that title, Cyrus was tying himself to a much older heritage. However, he was also not claiming the Elamite legacy outright. He left Susa out of his title, instead sticking to just Anshan, a prominent city, but one that identified him as a local leader rather than an emperor. Because of that locality, and maybe its Elamiteness, Cyrus does not claim the title King of Anshan for himself in the section I just read. Instead, he attributes it to his ancestors, and claims a series of more impressive titles for himself. King of the World, Great King, Mighty King, all sound very impressive, but there isn't really a whole lot to talk about. They establish that Cyrus is impressive and powerful, and many kings both before and after Cyrus would claim those descriptions for themselves. Great King is sometimes used to indicate dominion over other kings, like the defeated Croesus and Astyages of earlier conquests, but it is not nearly as direct as King of Kings, the most enduring Achaemenid royal title, which actually doesn't appear on the Cyrus Cylinder. Next up is King of Babylon, which is also pretty straightforward. Cyrus is king, he rules over the recently conquered Babylon. Really not much more for me to say about that. Then comes King of the Land of Sumer and Akkad, and that's really the first title on this list that requires some context. From our perspective, where we've only covered history from about 1000 BC and mostly focused on Persia, the land of Sumer and Akkad really comes out of nowhere, but in reality we've been talking about it this whole time. Sumer and Akkad were the earliest Near Eastern empires or kingdoms. Sumer refers to- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. 
And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The first civilization to really develop in Mesopotamia, a collection of many cities around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that started consolidating around major kings circa 3000 BCE. To really help that sink in as how long ago that is, that's roughly 5000 years before today. 3000 BCE was just as far from Cyrus as Cyrus is from us. The Sumerian culture was eventually dominated by an empire that rose out of the city called Akkad, which has never been properly located but was probably near modern Baghdad. The Akkadians spoke a Semitic language of the same name that became the lingua franca of Mesopotamia until the arrival of the Aramaeans I discussed back in episode 1. And as I've repeatedly mentioned, this was still the literary language of Babylon at the time of Cyrus's conquest. The Akkadians established the first centrally-led kingdom that we might really call an empire. The Akkadian Empire lasted from the 24th century to the mid-22nd century BC, when a combination of drought and invasion toppled their power. Ironically for our narrative, it was an invasion out of the Zagros Mountains, not by Indo-European peoples who were still living on the steppe at this time, but by the Gutians. How precisely the Gutians that toppled Akkadian power were related to the Gutians that were led by Ugbaru to capture Babylon for Cyrus is historically unclear. From the ashes of the Akkadian kingdom over 1500 years before Cyrus the Great rose the Bronze Age incarnations of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Despite the passage of more than a millennium, the prestige of Akkadian and Sumerian cultures still played a role in Neo-Assyrian and Babylonian culture, more so for Babylon. Obviously, the Akkadian language was still very relevant, and even Sumerian was used for some ceremonial purposes in the 6th century BCE. What all of this means is that southern Mesopotamia was still called the land of Sumer and Akkad in official documents. Practically, it was synonymous with what I've been calling Babylonia, but symbolically, it claimed 2,500 years of cultural heritage, which Cyrus was now asserting for himself. The next title, King of the Four Corners of the World, seems like it would be just another prestige title, like Mighty King, or just King of the World. In reality, it is another historic moniker tying Cyrus back to the Akkadians. The first king to call himself King of the Four Corners, or, and pardon my pronunciation here, Lugal Kibraati Erbaeti, in Akkadian, was the fourth Akkadian king, Naram-Sin. It's not clear if the Four Corners was supposed to refer to any four specific locations, but it might have been the desert regions at the corners if you draw a narrow rectangle around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Essentially, it conveyed kingship over the whole known world. After the fall of Akkad, the title was used on and off by various Mesopotamian kings for centuries, 
before returning to prominence under the Neo-Assyrian Empire. However, it was not used by the Neo-Babylonian kings from Nabopolassar to Nabonidus, making this title one of the first clearly Assyrian things that Cyrus claims in the cylinder. There will be more on that in a few minutes. A similar title dating back to the first Akkadian king was Sharkishati, meaning King of the Universe or King of Everything. The distinction between that and King of the Four Corners isn't clear, but it may imply control over the divine aspects of the world as well. This title was used by both Assyrian and Babylonian kings, though Nebuchadnezzar seems to have been the last one to use it. It doesn't appear on the cylinder, but Cyrus would also make use of that title. Cyrus ended up being the last king of the four corners of the world, as that title was not used by any of his successors and eventually fell into history. But king of the universe, that was used throughout the Achaemenid Empire and into the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire. I suppose there was just something a little more imposing about king of everything than just king of the whole known world. The titles are suddenly interrupted by a genealogy after king of the four corners, in which Cyrus reaches back three generations to label his immediate ancestors great kings and kings of Anshan, before describing himself as scion of kingship. This was very important for establishing his legitimacy to the Babylonians. Scion, if you don't know what it means, is just the same as descendant. So Cyrus is stating that he is descended from a line of kings. This works hand-in-hand with Babylonian philosophical and religious traditions dating back to the Bronze Age that uphold and legitimize rulers from royal lines, even if it isn't tied to the most recent dynasty. It's even possible that Cyrus embellished his lineage, describing his grandfather and great-grandfather in association with Anshan, even if they didn't historically control that territory. This would have just helped to enhance his own royal pedigree. Evidence for this little white lie in the cylinder is usually found by referencing an inscription from the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal that mentions Cyrus, king of Parsimash, which presumably references Cyrus I, grandfather to our Cyrus the Great. Ashurbanipal's scribes associated the Taspid rulers with Parsumash, i.e. Persia, rather than the more prestigious Elamite city of Anshan. But by asserting a more prestigious heritage, Cyrus the Great tried to make himself that much greater in Babylonian eyes. The final part of this section with all of the titles goes back to proclaiming Cyrus's status as a divinely chosen ruler, saying his rule is beloved by Bel and Nabu. Bel just means lord and is used for Marduk in this line. Nabu is another Babylonian god, the patron of literacy and wisdom, whose name forms the root of many kings' names in Neo-Babylonian history. Nabopolassar, Nabuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, all of these names evoke the god of wisdom. Cyrus, likewise, is styling himself as a wise king by claiming affiliation with Nabu in addition to Marduk. Before we move on, a bit of trivia because I was curious and thought I'd share. I'm not entirely sure we should be mocking Cyrus or the Lords of the Seven Kingdoms for their lengthy throne names when modern Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom is sitting pretty with between 16 and 21 official titles depending on what you count, and at least nine unofficial titles, including, bizarrely, Admiral of the Great Navy of the State of Nebraska. So there's your off-topic bit for the day. Have fun googling that one. The next eight or so lines of the cylinder deal with Cyrus settling into his role as King of Babylon. It has a lot of the hallmarks we can expect at this point. He was graceful, his troops were there, but everything was peaceful. 
he removed the burdens that Nabonidus had so unfairly placed on the people and temples. He reinstated the Akitu festival to earn Marduk's protection in which he and his son performed the role of king that Nabonidus had rejected for so long. Wait, what? His son? When did Cyrus get a son? Meet the future Cambyses II, everybody. Yes, Cyrus named his son Cambyses. For those of you keeping track, that means the Taspid Persian kings are Taspis, Cyrus, Cambyses, Cyrus, and Cambyses. Not particularly creative, but still better than 19 Louis. In spite of the naming convention, and I promise it won't get that much easier to keep track of Persian names in the future, you should probably remember Cambyses II, son of Cyrus II. This is the crown prince's first appearance in the historic record, and he's already a king. Cambyses was crowned co-king of Babylon alongside his father for the Akitu New Year's festival in Babylon that year. This seems to have been a symbolic gesture to give Cambyses some exposure and label him as the heir apparent, because we don't have any record of him as king after that first year. Beyond that point, it goes back to just being Cyrus, king of Babylon. We know nothing about Cyrus's successor before this point. We can't even begin to guess how old he was. Old enough to have some ceremonial responsibility in 538 BC, and young enough to be on campaign when he died 16 years later. But that still leaves us with a wide range of anywhere from a child to in his 30s. Cyrus would have been about 60 years old himself when he conquered Babylon, and Cambyses' mother is documented as a Persian noblewoman named Cassandani. Since we don't have any documentation for when Cyrus took a Persian wife, we can't even use her age as a limiting factor. Of course, there will be more on Cambyses at a later date, but for now we will leave him with his 15 minutes of fame as King of Babylon for the year. The next section of the cylinder is all about Cyrus's power being recognized by all of the new vassals he inherited from Nabonidus. It claims that Cyrus received all the kings of the world in Babylon, where they paid tribute to him and it specifies that they were the kings from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, and the Arab kings, who the cylinder calls the kings living in tents. The passage is subject to a little debate. On one hand, we know that Cyrus eventually did rule over all of the kings from one sea to the other, and in 539 he took over the government that they had previously been paying tribute to. On the other hand, it seems unrealistic that all of that territory conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in the western part of the empire just submitted. Where are all of the rebellions that marked Babylonian and Assyrian shifts in power? As always, the answer is, we don't really know. But it doesn't seem like there was anything there. We also don't know when the Cyrus Cylinder itself was composed, so there may have been a few years of consolidating power, but ultimately, we do know that all of Babylon's former territory was governed by Cyrus before the end of his reign, without too much fuss. Nothing was ever written down to discuss any rebellions, which historians generally understand to mean that they weren't severe even if they did happen. Now we reach the truly famous part of the cylinder, the part that has been held up as absolute proof that Cyrus was the perfect king. Cyrus Restoring the Conquered Gods and Peoples I mentioned briefly last week that it was common practice in ancient Mesopotamia to steal cult statues of a given region's gods when they were conquered. Well, Babylon was no exception to that storied tradition, and by the time Cyrus arrived, the city was hosting stolen sacred objects from across their empire, in addition to the cult statues that Nabonidus had just recently seized. 
Cyrus sent them all home. The first two lines of this section are devoted to how he returned the gods of conquered lands all around the empire. The two that follow tell that Cyrus also ordered the statues taken by Nabonidus to be returned. Then there is a short prayer to the gods for Marduk and Nabu to bless Cyrus and Cambyses with long lives. But sandwiched between the two accounts of returning gods to their shrines is one sentence that enhances the reputation of this whole document. Quote, I also gathered their people and brought them back to their former habitations. <sighs> that line, read without bias, in context, within the cylinder, sounds like it's referring to people associated with the stolen shrines. But it has been interpreted, almost from the moment it was translated, as an account of Cyrus returning the forcibly deported populations of conquered territories to their homelands. Most specifically, this has been applied to the Jews. In episode 3, I covered the Babylonian conquest of Judah, the destruction of the Great Temple in Jerusalem, and the exile of a large number of Judahites to Babylon. This is where we tie into my deliberately evocative opening. Cyrus is celebrated in the Bible as the king who sent the Jews back to Judah and ordered the rebuilding of the temple, ushering in the second temple period of Jewish history. The prophetic book of Isaiah, in the section thought to be written roughly contemporaneous with the Persian conquest, calls Cyrus God's anointed one, or to use the more loaded Hebrew, Mashiach, more commonly pronounced in English as Messiah. Many figures in the Bible are actually given that title, but Cyrus is the only non-Jew to receive the honor. The cheering crowds, procession through the city, and palm branches in the air were all already symbols associated with powerful kings by the Persian period. Of course, cheering crowds and a parade are things that we can still identify as forms of celebration today, and palm branches as a sacred symbol date back to Bronze Age Assyria and ancient Egypt. In those cultures, and probably by extension, Persians who they influenced by the conquest of Babylon, the palm was a symbol of fertility, abundance, and eternal life. In a possibly related appearance, the palm became a symbol of victory in the Greek and Roman worlds a few centuries later. And we can see both of those traditions mixing in the biblical story of Palm Sunday that I referenced at the beginning of this episode. During the period of Persian rule, Persian prophets like Zechariah started predicting a coming messiah using descriptions that evoked Near Eastern and particularly Persian kingship. By the 2nd century BCE, both the Greek and Near Eastern influence can be seen in the description of the triumph of the Maccabees against the Seleucid Empire. And of course, all of that culminates in Judeo-Christian imagery for Palm Sunday. This show will have to get to all of those events in significantly more detail, but that is not for a while yet. There is a lot to be said just about the influence of the Persians on biblical history, and that topic will be getting its own episode in due course. For now, I have to address a frequently repeated claim that historians have been debunking since it was made in 1967. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah, that is, king of Iran, repeatedly claimed that the Cyrus Cylinder was the first declaration of human rights and that it gave Cyrus's subjects, quote, freedom of opinion and other basic rights, unquote. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen anything of the sort in the cylinder that I have been describing. The crux of his argument seems to be that it represents freedom of religion 
and liberation from whatever vague oppression Nabonidus held over his subjects. In 2010, the same point was brought up again by the president of Iran, and it appears regularly on the internet. I'm sorry to say it, but there just isn't much validity for that claim. Cyrus and his successors do seem to have been particularly tolerant of a variety of religious beliefs, but to describe that as human rights is projecting a very modern legal concept to a time and place where it just doesn't exist. If the Achaemenid kings had decided to crack down on religions other than their own, they would have been entirely within their power to do so. It just would have been bizarre, because in the ancient Near East, there weren't really any proselytizing religions. Nobody wanted to force anybody else to worship their god and only their god. They were generally pretty accepting of all of the different cults, be they Nabu, Marduk, Sin, Yahweh, or gods that we haven't even gotten to yet, like Ahura Mazda and Mithra. There was religious friction, sure, but nothing really indicates that what Cyrus was doing was particularly unique, other than the fact that he was making a point to say it directly, in contrast with Nabonidus' devotion to a particular god, which, remember, everyone else seemed to think was strange at the time. Certainly nothing about the context of the cylinder itself acts as a charter of rights in the way that modern Iranian leaders have tried to portray. It's not a document listing privileges to the people, it's just a document explaining what Cyrus did as an autocratic king. I invite you to look for yourself, there are translations freely available online, and I've linked one in the bibliography section of the podcast website. So go check it out and see for yourself and let me know if you think this claim by the Shah holds any water. Moving forward once again, we get to the most damaged part of the cylinder. We can't really get full sentences out of this, but what we do have makes it clear that this section is describing how Cyrus restored the privileges of the Temple of Marduk and was repairing and improving the city walls. The last seven lines contained a description of the new, impressive, and beautiful fortifications that Cyrus supported for his new city. Remember, this is still technically a building inscription, despite everything else we've talked about. It describes a reinforced moat, finishing uncompleted walls, and new bronze-studded gates made of cedar wood. But there is one final detail of importance that I want to talk about before the cylinder finishes by giving one last praise to Marduk. It is actually a reference to another building cylinder, this one dedicated by the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal from when he restored the walls at the end of the previous century following his own conquest of Babylon. This is the second reference to Assyrian royalty, the first being the king of the four corners, and the only person other than Cambyses and the gods who Cyrus references by name. It is clearly Cyrus deliberately associating himself with Assyria's last great king. Why? because Cyrus completes his conquest of Mesopotamia first and foremost as the heir to Assyrian royal power rather than Babylonian. He has no Babylonian heritage to stand on, so instead he ties himself to Ashurbanipal, the last great foreign king to successfully conquer Babylon, and the last great king of the only Mesopotamian culture he really had any claim to. Cyrus and Persia, by way of their Median heritage, were connected to one of the empires that took over Assyria and Cyrus used Ashurbanipal and his ceremonial title as king of the four corners of the world to tie the Persians into that lineage when he began to rule Babylon. It was a bit of a circuitous way to achieve legitimacy in the eyes of the Babylonians, but for all intents and purposes, it seems to have been successful enough. There wouldn't be any resistance from the Babylonians for a generation after Cyrus's conquest. And with that, both the Cyrus Cylinder and the Persian conquest of Babylon are completed, as far as our narrative is concerned. 
In the immediate aftermath, Cyrus split his new territory into two satrapies, Babylon, called Babarush by the Persians, and Trans-Euphrates, covering the western half of his new realm across the Euphrates River. The Gutian Ugbaru was satrap for two years before his death. After that point, a Persian named Gubaru, note the added G, became satrap of Babarush, now including all of the original Neo-Babylonian territory after Cyrus merged the initial two satrapies together under one Persian leader. Cyrus returned to Iranian territory, probably to begin splitting his time between Babylon and Ecbatana as dual capitals, while his new capital city of Pasargadai was being constructed in his home province of Pars. The nine years of his reign following the conquest of Babylon passed without any major incident, and so I will meander through the 530s BC with a series of shorter episodes about the world and culture of the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great, before returning to the main narrative. So join me again in two weeks, as the normal bi-weekly schedule resumes, and we can go back and see who exactly it is we've been talking about all this time. You can find more information about the show, a bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree now including the generation of Cambyses, and maps at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes will be available there, or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. You can contact me with suggestions and feedback either on the website or at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show today or you're excited about what comes next, tell a friend and share on social media to get the word out. On Facebook, it's the History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, you can find me as at History of Persia. And of course, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.